you know, this tug of war, you know, going on among women, you know, that, uh, you know, you have one group of women who believes, you know, the only answer is uh, it feels like, you know, the annihilation of men, uh, you know, and women need to run the world. And you have another camp, which I, you know, honestly do fall into. And, uh, you know, I feel like it's, you know, it's not about a person's genitals. It's about what they represent, what they do in the world, you know, their deeds, uh, you know, rather than their genitals. And I don't know, I wonder if you, you know, if you run into that much, because it all seems to be surfacing again now that, you know, the next election is upon us. And, you know, I guess, um, you know, Bernie Sanders is, uh, I think, leading a lot of the Democratic um, candidates. And uh, it's, you know, probably... Uh, hard for some of the Hillary supporters, you know, maybe it's, you know, seeing him out there as like rubbing salt in their wounds or something. Um, you know, it, I don't know, do you, does it make you a little crazy, you know, when some of these, you know, when some of these women want to deny, um, you know, good men out there and, um, you know, think that women are the only answer to our problems? You know, I, I, you bring up several points all together, and uh, I really appreciate the chance to, to address them, actually, even though they're not in the necessarily in the archetype um, conversation. They, everything's relevant. And um, I am wholeheartedly with you in that we, we really can't be just dividing into um, um, us and them groups of enemies and uh, the good people, you know, it's um, it's not, it doesn't work that way. And we, we talked a little bit about this last time because to me it's just humans are flawed and groups and communities are flawed. And the more people base their sense of self-worth on what identity groups they're in, the more they will deny any wrongdoing by anybody in their identity group, especially leaders or representatives, minimize the harm caused by somebody in their identity group or structures from their identity group, dehumanize the victims of that harm or justify violence against others that are not in their identity group that are perceived as a threat in some way. And so I, in, in my peace building work, this is, this is a very high priority is not to, not to have what Johann Galton calls a steep self other gradient where there's us and them there's the good ones and the bad ones, you know, the virtuous in-group and the threatening, dangerous out-group. And so I, I think understanding that we're all worthy of love, we're all inherently, you know, good and worthy of respect, just as born humans on the planet, not because of our skin color or our genitals or anything else about us that, you know, we our religion, our our, our you know, language, whatever the, the various groups are that we get divided into. Um, and sometimes that mentality, that us and them mentality, can really cause a lot of damage politically, as you, as you mentioned, and, and um, the way that I honestly see our political system, it feels almost like a big sports event where people are so much more interested in trying to be on the right team and, and demonize the others than they are in trying to build bridges and figure out how to solve the world's problems by, you know, making policies that work for everybody. And I, I, I do see that as um, something that is far too common. And I, I do think that feminism has a lot of um, variety and diversity in it, and it's doing very hard work on this issue with regarding gender and sex. And uh, there's, you know, there's, a, there's such a big spectrum. I mean, on, on the one hand... You have the very hardcore, fringe, radical feminist separatists, you know, who believe that, yes, we need this virtuous female community with no males involved. And then on the other polar opposite, you have the very hardcore trans activist extremists that believe that if somebody is born male and they are fully intact with all their genitals and they just feel female on a given day, they should be able to waltz into a, a changing room and stand there and watch girls and women dress and undress because they feel female that day, you know. And so in between those two extremes, I think are most good-hearted people who, trans people and feminists, who really feel as though 
You know, we need to break down gender stereotypes. We need to make sure people understand that dresses and makeup aren't what makes someone female or feminine and that um, there is privilege. There's male privilege in the world. And saying one day when you're in your 30s that you, you know, you want to transition doesn't erase a, a lifetime of conditioning with male privilege, but that you deserve dignity and human rights and safety and, and equality you know, and you deserve to be welcomed and respected. And so it's, I think these are nuanced issues, but unfortunately our our culture doesn't do well with nuance. We want to have there be good folks and bad folks and enemies and friends and paint people into camps. And uh, I, I would love to see the, the dialogue about these issues allow for what I think most people actually think, you know, which is let's let's have equality and dignity for everyone. And be careful about issues of privilege and, and about what makes sense. Well, I, I, I think you uh, spoke to that very well. And, um, uh, you know, I, I personally, you know, I, as far as the upcoming election goes and, the, you know, the man anti-man uh, thing, uh, you know, I've basically been saying, look, you know, we, we just need to win this one. Uh, you know, we, we certainly need to, um, you know, stand behind the candidate that's got the best uh, uh, chance of doing that, you know, especially if that candidate is going to, you know, help the most people. And, um, you know, and sometimes that just falls flat on deaf ears, you know, and it's, it seems so logical to me. But um, I appreciate, you know, how you started out your answer by saying, um, uh, you know, how we tend to um, – I don't know, I forget the word you use, but it's kind of like we wear blinders uh, about the things that um, may be done by the leaders in our camp, so to speak. I mean, that explains a lot, you know, uh, you know what's going out there in the world. Well, and I, I think that, you know, as you're pointing out, and, you know, I think you said that as well, that some candidates might be black and actually not do as well in promoting policies that help people of color. Some people might be female, like Sarah Palin, and not or Condi Rice, and not do as well in promoting policies that help women and girls. And so, to me, I actually am very, very interested. And a lot of millennial feminists are much more flexible about this than people my age or your age. It's, it's, um, it's interesting how cha- how much change has happened societally about this, where a lot of younger feminists are very interested in what policies actually will help girls and women the most, much more than, you know, what what the person is who's promoting them, what their sex is, at the same time understanding that representation does matter. Being able to see women and girls, you know, women in positions of power and authority does matter. And so it's not that it's not that anybody's saying, no, that doesn't matter, we don't need to just try to work toward people of color and, and women being in more better represented. At the same time, they do want to measure policies as well as, you know, not just identity politics where it's just about what someone is. It's more about what they've done, you know, who, what they stand for. And, again, this is nuance. <laughs> and I wish, I wish we were better at it than we are. <laughs> Yeah, um, uh, I, I, uh, you're saying that, and I think I also heard uh, Bill Moore on um, uh, HBO's Real Time. He said that too, you know, that Americans just uh, don't understand nuance. Um, you know, it's got to be black or white. You know, it's hard for, for some of us to uh, understand and accept gray. You know, it's almost as if there's a purity test. Um, you know, and if the, you know, and if somebody doesn't pass the purity test, then um, you know they're they're sort of discarded. But anyway, um, you know, I, I kind of, I guess I kind of did feel like this uh, kind of falls under the the warriorist archetype because you know we're all out there trying to do our best. Uh, I mean, I was recently at a, a group uh, of mixed men and women, and you know, we were talking about the pink pussy hats and the Me Too movement, and um, I was really surprised at how um, some people, men and women, were so offended by both and um, you know it's uh, there's so many degrees of the spectrum Um, you know I was especially uh, curious to hear the women who were um, 
you know, sort of offended by the pink pussy hats and, you know, they felt like it was demeaning and um, I don't know, it's it's like, wow, you know, it's so hard to get a consensus. Uh, it's so hard to build coalitions, uh, you know, it, 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 you know, to just get everybody on the same page. Um, it, it, it's like looking for a magic, you know, or, uh, or, or an act of God, you know, something like that. But, um, uh, anyway, I, I do think we're all doing our best to try to be the warrior archetype, but but we're specifically tonight, I think, going to talk about ecofeminist warriors. Um, so, what um, what inspired you to start writing about uh, warrior archetypes, Trelawney? Well, let me before I um, answer that, I just want to say, you know, I think you hit on what what some would call a sort of less healthy manifestation of the warrior archetype where people are it's stuck in this almost adolescent mode of wanting to fight because you want to feel like when you're fighting you're you're on the right team and therefore you feel good about yourself because you're a warrior for the good and for justice um and everybody you know people fall into these sort of ego traps of doing things in order to reassure themselves that they're good and when you when you have a warrior archetype involved in that, then it can end up like you like you said, causing more division and not being able to build any kind of consensus or unity or bridges. And this is something that um, I think the I'm trying to remember which Native Americans talk about this. I want to say it maybe the Longhouse Native Americans that talk about this warrior modality as a sort of adolescent modality that people have to move through as they build, when you build empathy, you feel empathy for things and you want to try to make a difference as you realize how much wrong is in the world. But when you're in that, when you're really doing it to feel good about yourself, then you're not going to build bridges and you're not going to build coalitions. And you might be willing to chain yourself to trees, but you're not going to bring people in that much, right? And then you can move past that to other kind of slightly more nuanced views that can build bridges, hopefully, as your empathy develops further. But um, I, I, was, I started to get into thinking about archetypes, and I, I want to just give the disclaimer that I'm not an expert on archetypes. There's wonderful feminist scholarship on archetypes out there right now, and I, for example, the work of Estella Lauder, um, I've looked at a little of her work, and you know I've examined some of it, but I, I wish I could say I was some sort of, you know, had expertise in archetypes. Mostly it's been that I've drawn them into other work I've done on feminist peace building and ecofeminism. And so if, uh, if people want to look for high level, like sociology of archetypes and social psychology, then um, there are some really good authors out there. But I first encountered this idea when my niece was little and she started being hit with the, the princess bug. And my sister, Talison, who's um, an, um, an ecological ethicist, she was very concerned because she didn't want, you know, her daughter to be completely buried in pink plastic. And uh, my mother-in-law, who's um, in sort of esoteric um, clergy person type, uh, she, um, she explained to my, my sister that this was an archetypal phase that a lot of girls go through because the princess archetype is this very important, central, special person who's powerful in certain ways and gets lots of attention, and that it's just archetypal work that, that, that you know, our culture kind of gives us, and it manifests in girls as princess work, and, you know, there's various other archetypes. And that got me thinking, like, what, 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 what's this about? And uh, I found it really reassuring and helpful to frame it that way. And to think about, well, how can we make this a healthy archetype journey for my niece? And I started exploring other archetypes, and I found this cool book. Um, it's called Know Thyself, The Kid's Guide to the Archetypes or something. It's by Kirsten Merrick. And it goes through different archetypes and how to help children understand what's healthy and, and what might not be so helpful. And then as I was working on my own trauma healing, then this wise woman that I know recommended Carolyn Mice's work. She wrote um, Anatomy of the Spirit, and she wrote a book on archetypes called Who Are You? She's fairly well-known. I don't know her work that well. She's um, an interesting person, but I found her discussion of archetypes helpful. And this, this wise woman that was helping me with the trauma work helped me use the warrior archetype to um, protect myself when I was going out in public because I had been followed on public transportation and sort of stalked and this sort of thing. And uh, my brother had said, you know, people target 
people to do these sorts of, you know, following them or whatever based on their energy profiles. And you're you're giving out an energy profile that's too vulnerable. You need to change the way you walk and carry yourself. And I had no idea that was true. And so this wise woman helped me do warrior yoga poses and think about other ways to try to embody the warrior archetype with clothing or symbols or, or other, you know, breathing or various things. And it worked dramatically well in helping me as I was going out in public to, I just really changed the way I felt and carried myself and, and the number of people who bothered me. <laughs> that's really, that's really interesting um, that you were, you were emitting this vulnerable energy. Um, and uh, I wonder if that's something uh, you know, we think about, uh, I, I would imagine if maybe we're fearful, you know, if we're out alone at night or something, but just kind of in general, um, you know, definitely something to give some thought to. Um, and could you say the name of the, um, uh, you know, how would someone uh, get more into that? Who was the person that taught you about that? Well, her name is Lori Estee, E-S-T-E-Y, and she's in Beverly, Massachusetts. Um and uh, I can give you her contact information or her website or something if you want. Um, and I do want to just add that I, you know, as a feminist in particular, want to make sure never to imply in the slightest that women bring these things on themselves by having the wrong energy profile or way of carrying themselves or something like that. This, you know, this is not what I'm saying at all. It's more just that if criminals target people with certain, that you know, it, with the way they carry yourself in certain ways, then um, it's, <laughs> it is nice to know that so that whatever percentage of people would target somebody like that, you can try to kind of make your odds a little better. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Well, um, now you um, you talk about feminism being the key to healthier uh, warrior archetypes. Um, can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. And you, you kind of touched on this a little bit in talking about how men aren't the enemy. And this is something my brother Trevanian does a lot of work on um, masculinity and maleness uh, from a sort of pro-feminist perspective. And he has to work hard with men on helping men who really want to be allies understand that men aren't bad. Men aren't intrinsically bad, and maleness isn't intrinsically bad. It's patriarchy that, has, that is really toxic and violent and that causes us all harm, men and women, as well as giving men a lot of privilege and kind of designing society in a way that rewards male violence in certain ways. And so it's not to sort of let men off the hook for being responsible for their own behavior in any way, as much as to, again, say it's not men aren't the enemy. Maleness isn't evil or bad or wrong. This is something where men need men are totally dehumanized and harmed by, by patriarchy, and that's why there's such a high suicide rate for young men in our culture. You know, but feminism, I think, is the key for men and women to understand how to embody and kind of symbolize healthy warrior archetypes by deconstructing this lens that we're all given because we grow up in this deeply misogynist, patriarchal, sexist society, and we all get this subconscious lens of viewing the world and reality that distorts everything with this, this really, with, with violence on, and seeing things, um, seeing power imbalances, for example, like it, a lot of good feminist geopolitics has been working on how if a, if a community inherently rewards power imbalance, then that causes violence to grow in that community because when there's a power imbalance, then that ends up becoming, it becomes a reward to have more power and to have power over others and to coerce others. and. Instead, if a community has a, a relational model that's based on mutuality and kinship, then that leads to less violence, right? And so feminist helps us develop a clearer lens and correct these distortions that lead us to power imbalances and to reward power imbalances. And uh, feminist warrior archetypes or feminist examination of warrior archetypes can help us apply these sorts of ethical principles to the warrior archetype that can, you know, the warrior archetype itself being one who strives for justice 
especially in the face of opposition, but sort of nevertheless she persisted. You know, this is this is the warrior archetype. Mm-hmm. You you sense that it's wrong and you want to help make it right, even when the going gets tough, even when it's not popular or whatever. And uh, that's a beautiful archetype right there. And it doesn't need to be about a power imbalance or coercion or violence. So let me ask you a question. Um, you know, you were talking about your brother's work and, uh, you know, and, and you were saying it's not about um, – males necessarily you're talking about patriarchy as the problem and um you know and male privilege and and all of that you know has to be looked at and worked through and disassembled and um does that also explain the women who prop up patriarchy you know the women who by association um with maybe especially powerful white men you know they're somehow benefiting from the patriarchy so they prop up the kkk they prop up um you know uh religions that you know would take women's uh, rights to their bodies away um you know all you know they they prop up uh, female genital mutilation they prop up the porn industry um you know all the different things that i mean women are also involved in too um you know, I think sometimes we forget that, uh, you know, women are right there, you know, keeping these uh, sorts of things, um, you know, in patriarchy alive and well. Um, should we be looking at them differently? Um, you know, do they kind of get a pass because, uh, you know, they're kind of just going along with the people in power uh, so that they um, – you know, so that their life is easier, maybe they, uh, you know, they aren't threatened. Um, can you speak to that a bit? You know, like the women who voted for Trump or Roy Moore, um, you know, the Sarah Palins, Margaret Thatchers of the world, you know, the, uh, um, you know, what, I, I, mean, I hate to say it like this because it sounds callous, but what's, what's their excuse and should they be let off the hook? I guess I never want to let anyone, quote-unquote, off the hook. Um, It's more about trying to understand what motivates people and what sorts of healing they need. And uh, I agree with you that this is a huge problem. And I think it's, it's, you know, a complex problem with multiple factors going on at the same time, varying degrees for varying people. But, for for example, um, male approval is a very powerful thing very powerful and um, I think a lot of women do the things they do because they are we as women are so carefully trained to seek the approval of men of the male gaze and of the male dominated culture and so women who are pro-porn for example um, a lot of times it's without really knowing much about it or thinking about it but just knowing that that makes them cool with the guys and not somebody the guys feel awkward or uncomfortable or embarrassed with, you know, um, or just kind of makes them seem somehow a little bit more appealing, you know, because they want to let men do whatever men want to do, you know, sexually. It's sort of, um, and so the the male approval, I mean, if you look at the, the amount of effort women put into earning the approval of the male gaze or of men or the male culture, I mean, it's staggering, it's staggering. Just physical appearance alone. There's this great book, something, I wish I could remember the name of it. It's something like When Women Stop Hating Their Bodies or something. I think that's the title, When Women Stop Hating Their Bodies. And uh, it's just this amazing look at what if all of the energy women put into trying to change the way they look in order to meet some sort of male gaze approval, what if they put all that energy into something else? I mean, imagine how the world would be, you know? Um, so that's one piece of it. Another piece of it I would say is that because we have this society that rewards power imbalance and that has great power imbalance in it, then yeah, there are going to be people who want to get as much of the piece of the pie as they can. And so whatever, whatever they can do to kind of chain themselves or hook themselves, you know, whatever, link, link themselves to people who have power, who have more of the pie than others, then they, um, they're going to try to do that. And you get a lot of really racist women, and you get women who are aligning themselves with really sexist men. 
And it's actually been kind of interesting to watch women who tried to join, for example, some of these men's rights activist movements and say, yeah, we agree with you. And then the women end up getting treated really horribly by the men, and they're surprised by this. And they're like, wait a minute, I thought I was on your side, you know? And um, mm-hmm. and then the, that brings us to the third piece of it, which to me is a really important piece, which is that, in in my opinion, I believe that females in our society live in terror, constant terror of violence from males of various kinds. And it's different levels of terror and mostly subconscious for a lot of people. But when you look at how many women are have experienced violence from, from males, then it's it's an amazing, overwhelming picture of an epidemic, a dystopian nightmare epidemic of violence against women. And there's got to be some part of women that just want to cozy up to the bully as much as they can and try to hope that by cozying up to the bully and not being seen as a problem or as any kind of, you know, rocking the boat or whatever, that that will protect them from some portion of the violence that they otherwise would experience. But in, in the end, there's women like every person we all have these three core fears. Am I good? Am I competent? Am I worthy of respect? And patriarchy does its best to shape the answers to those questions in a way that preserves and maintains and rewards patriarchy. So let me ask you, if a woman tries to embody a healthy uh, warrioress uh, archetype, um, do you, uh, how does that, uh, I mean, and I don't know if there's an answer to this, but does that make her life um, easier, you know, to deal with patriarchy? Uh, does it, um, you know, uh, does it maybe, you know, put her at more risk because she's bucking the status quo? Um, you know, I'm not sure if there's an answer, and it might vary from situation to situation, but I'm just curious if you had any insights on that. Well, I do think it varies from situation to situation because there are women who are in such abusive, you know, trapped in abusive situations that survival is actually an act of rebellion, you know. I mean, if there's a woman trapped in an abusive marriage and she she just is so isolated that she feels as though there's no hope of escape or like if she tried to escape then he would kill her and her children or something, then it's really just about surviving, then she may call on the warrior archetype to try to help her survive another day, you know? And that's, that's, that's a worst-case example in a lot of ways. Um, but if she tried to, you know, do anything more than that, anything more than survive, then, yeah, it could end up costing her a lot. And, and a lot of women do, you know, if it seems like their children are getting more and more in danger, then they'll, then it becomes important to do more than survive and they try to protect their children in one way or another and they pay the price. I mean, they get killed or they get permanently injured or they, you know, various things happen, right? You know, we know that women who defend themselves against men who threaten their lives or abuse them often just end up in jail. And that's that. I mean, I think some, I wish I could remember the percentage, but some, high percentage of women who are in jail for um, murder are there because they murdered someone, a man, who was attacking them or who was a direct yeah. threat to yeah, them. That's, you know? And so that's, these, that's, these have, conse- have consequences, as you say. Yeah, and it probably depends on, uh, some of it might depend on your socioeconomic level. It might depend on what part of the country you live in. Um, All of those things are probably factors. Sure, yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about your, um, you know, your work as an expert in the peace building um, uh, projects you've been involved in. Um, Talk about the importance of uh, the warrior archetype uh, in in peace building. What does that look like? Um, And and one of the reasons um, I'm asking that is um, because, you know, I've heard, uh, especially from older women who have, um, you know, kind of have this attitude that you get more, um, you attract more flies with honey 
kind of a thing. Um, you know, they're uncomfortable with, I don't know, what I, I'd probably imagine as the warrior archetype. You know, they, they're more into maybe cajoling or sweet-talking their way, uh, you know, toward their goal. Um, so I, I guess I just, I, I wonder about that. Well, this is this is important. Is the uh, understanding what someone's goal is and what strategies will best achieve that goal? And there are different times and places and situations in which negotiation, you know, and compromise will actually achieve more than advocacy and activism. And so, you know, this is what we talked about about how not letting the warrior archetype become ego based. And I think if, it's, if, if you really are trying to achieve justice, then your goal is to figure out which strategy is going to work best in which case and to do it even if it becomes hard or requires a lot of courage or encounters a lot of opposition, but not despite the fact that, you know, a different solution would actually be more effective. And so I do think that strategy, intelligent strategy, is um you know it can't be about ego it has to be about the actual goal uh but in in peace building then you know i i mean too often people people look at peace building as passiveness passivity and wanting to just you know not not say anything mean you know what i mean and this is um this is a, not an accurate view of peace building if you look at conflict transformation then it's very important that that people understand when the status quo is inherently violent because there is cultural violence where symbols and language and representation of, of different groups is, is violent or structural violence where there are wage gaps and glass ceilings and various things or direct violence where there's, you know, infanticide and selective abortion as well, you know, rape and, and uh, wife beating, intermittent partner violence, things like this. And so these are all different kinds of violence, and they need to be named in order to, they need to be exposed and, and recognized in order to work on building peace. And in, in peace-building circles, then people look carefully at, you know, there's a, there's a famous sociologist named Johan Galtzing. I think he's Swedish. He, um, he's often called the father of peace studies, which kind of bothers me. I wish people had some neutral term, you know parent of peace studies, but he, um, he talks about the importance of uh, recognizing how violence begets violence, and so a lot of people like to think of, a lot of our stories have this myth of redemptive violence in them, like just one more fight and we'll have peace. If we win one more war, then we'll have peace, right? And Galton is good about kind of recognizing that you really need to, your means and your ends are very connected. You have to go about achieving your goals in the same, you know, with the same values and ethics of the goals you want to achieve. And when I was studying the peace builders in Northern Ireland, these are clergy who were working to try to build peace between the Catholics and Protestants in the 80s and 90s there, and the 70s, then I was, I thought that they did an amazing job embodying that. Because this was the kind of warrior archetype where these people would press on despite facing death threats. They would have to look under their cars every day for bombs, you know. They, sometimes the police would send guards to their churches because somebody had threatened to bomb their church. Um, this would be professional suicide often. They would lose their jobs because they crossed the street to say Happy Christmas to the Catholic priest you know, or whatever, crossing that divide. They would be attacked constantly and criticized constantly because of the sense of betrayal of the in-group, right? But they would press on. They would put themselves in harm's way. They would go into the riots. They would go into the, you know, the, the situations where things were very unsafe. And they would do late-night secret negotiations with the IRA, you know, things like this, in order to try to impact the peace process. And they actually... They actually did. I mean, I, I, they did. They had an impact on the peace process and on swaying the mood of the communities in order to let the peace process take root and grow. And some of them, 
it really got to them. It took a real toll. And some of them just kind of kept on doing it. And some of them just didn't let it get to them somehow. They were able to let it roll off of them. But these people were able to de-escalate violence and use peaceful means. But they were real warriors about it, you know? I mean, it was amazing. And so, you know, they they were warriors without weapons, in a sense, uh, or what we think of as a weapon. Yeah, yeah, their their they their tools were were they used symbols and uh, archetypes and and sort of the, the sort of empathy and connection with their community and their sense of expert. They had these base these social forms of power in their communities. They were considered experts. They had sort of legitimate authority in various ways, and they used these kinds of power that weren't coercive power. Like coercive power, you know, reward powers like carrots and sticks, right? And a lot of peace building mm-hmm. now and diplomacy is really clear that that's very limited actually in building lasting peace. You can get to a peace agreement sometimes. You can get people, you can kind of corner people into signing, but m- many peace agreements fail. We have over half peace agreements fail within a few years. I forget the percentage. And so people have been working a lot in recent years on how to get the civil society to sign on and to buy in to peace, to intergroup peace. And in order to do that, you need to use other kinds of power that really are much more feminist. You know, they're not the power imbalance, right? They're not coercing anybody. They're persuading people. They're bringing people along. They're convincing, you know, and uniting people and building bridges. But in order to do that in the face of all of threats and harm and, and violence. I mean, that's a warrior, you know? Absolutely. Well, um, you believe that uh, religion, faith, spirituality, they actually offer useful guidance, uh, you know, as we try to be eco-feminist warriors. Um, tell us about that. Thanks. And I, I do, you know, I'm not going to leave out atheists here. I think that secular ideologies can be, you know, equally useful. Um, but I'm just going to speak to the more faith-based ones. Um, but in general, you know, what a lot of people have figured out in looking at society as a whole and peace building and diplomacy and whatnot is that ideas matter. Ideas shape our thinking and our sense of reality. And so we can't just go for policies. We have to actually win the ideas war, too, in a way. You know, you have to get, people have to get, come on board with an idea, and then that idea will change things. And religions, um, a lot of, you know, some people, there's this um, one scholar, this metaphysician, metaphysician scholar, Robert Neville, who, who says religions are basically sets of symbols. They're symbol systems. And... Um, and everybody, you know, if you're in a certain faith or a certain spiritual grouping or a certain religion, then you have certain stories and certain mythologies that is how you define the good. What What is the good? What is the thing that we all want for creation, for everything, for everyone? And how do we achieve that? How do we get there? How do we create wellness and flourishing within and around us and in our communities and on the whole earth? And so people end up with symbols and stories that involve powerful warrior archetypes and people who risk their lives for justice. And they're often called prophets. That's like sort of one subset of the warrior archetype is the prophet. And so, of course, there's Moses and Muhammad and Jesus and the Buddha and the Dalai Lama, various kinds of, of symbols and stories around these people that, that create these ideas that, that shape people's understanding of reality. Some of them use some violence, some of them don't. But religions and all religions and ideologies always have reformers who come along and figure out, wait a minute, somebody is using our symbol set, our religious symbol grouping, to justify violence or oppression. This isn't creating wellness. This isn't creating flourishing. We need to change. We need to interpret it this other way to bring healing and justice and peace. And that will help bring what we call in the in conflict transformation circles we call just peace, which is also called sometimes positive peace. It's uh, justice and peace. It's peace with content, not just sort of tranquility, right? And so you you get incredible stories of people who were inspired by whatever their faith is to become incredible warriors. And um, for for peace, you get, for example. 
Yeah, I remember there was this Christian missionary who was, um, I think he was in Thailand, and there was a flood. And there was a Buddhist person there, a Buddhist monk, who kept diving back into this river to save people from this flood over and over. He kept diving in to save one more person from this flood and bring them into the boat until he drowned. And that completely changed this Christian missionary's view about religion and Buddhism, you know, because <laughs> after that, he couldn't believe that Buddhists were somehow inferior in some way or, you know, damned to some sort of eternal torment, right? And uh, and you get story after story like that, where when people are embodying this incredibly powerful archetype of justice and pro- being prophetic and being a warrior, then they really do, they shape within their symbol set, within their home base, you know, they've got to shape how reality is viewed. And within religions and faiths and spiritualities, then it's really important, in my opinion, that we highlight female examples of this. You know, this is what we were talking about before with representation matters, right? Every grouping has them, and, and they write new ones. You know, religions aren't static. They change over time. They add things. Spirituality is the same thing. And so having female warriors and prophets and reformers, they can really help change that particular subculture, that symbol set, that faith set, subculture's understanding of gender, the idea that females are somehow inherently different from males in ways that benefit the patriarchy. You know, femininity is weak and passive and a follower. It can really help deconstruct gender and break these gender stereotypes um, if we have symbols and mythology and language and pronouns and archetypes that help heal these distortions patriarchy has kind of infected all of them with. Well, and, and you know, listening to you talk about this, um, I'm, I'm thinking about something I recently heard on, on television. It was uh, one of the Democratic candidates for president was talking about how the left um, has let the religious right hijack religion. And, uh, you know, and that the left used to be, um, you know, these warriors uh, for peace, you know, these warriors that were for workers' rights, these warriors that were, um, you know, fought against poverty. Um, but, uh, it, it, but now, uh, unless it's just the media doesn't cover it or they're doing it much too quietly, um, you know, the only religion we see in politics anymore is uh you know the you know the religious rights you know which tend to be you know uh, anti-abortion anti-gay uh, you know prop up a lot of organizations that you know uh, aren't good and healthy um and you know and who knows maybe that's why they say um you know the people are less you know, or, 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 you know, leaving religions in droves because it seems so antithetical to, um, you know, what we imagine, you know, Jesus would do or what we imagine is uh, good morality and ethics. And, um, you know, I, I wonder if, if that's part of this, you know, um, have, have our symbols uh, or our values, um, you know, kind of been hijacked um, you know, it, 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 does that kind of fit into what you've been talking about, that, um, you know, the, the things that used to be the hallmarks of, of, uh, of religion? I mean, I think Chris Hedges talked about it. Um, you know, uh, Christianity used to be, um, you know, they, they, were, they were kind of like the gatekeepers, you know, making sure government did the right thing, that corporations didn't run amok. But it kind of went screwy, and now we have uh, prosperity gospels instead of let's help the poor, um, and, you know, rather than think, well, they're poor because they're lazy or that sort of thing. Um, I, I wonder if, 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 you know, you have thoughts on that. Um, yeah, this, this is something that uh, we went into a little more depth in last time than, than we probably can this time, but I think that this was, I, I guess I see it as a twofold issue. On the one hand, it was totally hijacked by secular moneyed forces, corporate forces. The um, Institute for Religion and Democracy is this secular 
think tanks funded by dark money from corporations, secular corporations, with an economic agenda, a specific economic agenda, and they went out of their way to undermine what was the social gospel movement in mainline Christianity in the United States, which is doing just what you say. And uh, nobody really believed they were going to be as successful as they were. I, people knew about it. Pe- reformers tried to warn the leadership of these denominations. They passed out books about it. They, they tried to raise awareness, but nobody really believed it or took it seriously. And then they, you know, there was so much money and so much power behind this institute, this, uh, this IRD, Institute of Religion and Democracy, and it it really did. It went after all of the progressive clergy and all of the progressive parts of these mainline denominations year after year, decade after decade, and it did a number on them. And uh, that's something that is really tragic, and uh, I, I, I lament it, and I think that, you know, it's not really surprising. I mean, when you can't beat, when you can't defeat somebody openly, you know, then you, you kind of go underneath them and pull the rug out. At the same time, one of the things that if you, you know, I'm Methodist and within the Methodist tradition, then you learn that, that John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, he, be, he considered his own movement, the Methodist movement, completely dead and, 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 not, and devoid of value of, of the spirit before his death because it had moved away from its commitment to economic justice and, and to justice overall. Because what happened was he actually was this brilliant person who figured out if you get people meeting in small groups and kind of help them become leaders of their small groups and help them kind of, you know, figure out how to lead these groups to become faithful in, in these various ways, then it empowers people to go in their society. And, and they, these people became community leaders and politicians, and Methodists just became among the more successful people in their communities because they had this basically grassroots training on the ground of leadership in these Methodist little groups. And so then when that happened, because our society rewards power imbalance, then Methodism became interested in being respectable and in maintaining the power you get in a society that rewards power imbalance by being considered kind of more wealthy and more powerful and more respectable and it, it didn't it lost touch with its its roots which were a reform movement for economic justice. And John Wesley was completely disgusted. You know? But then again, this is what religion does. I mean, this is what happens. It people fail and flounder and get sucked into this power imbalance problem. And then reformers come along and they say, Hey, we can't do it this way and there are plenty of reformers out there now and there have been for years who have been doing wonderful work and leading more and more. Like, I don't know if you're aware that the monastic movement has actually taken off in recent decades. This guy, Shane Claiborne, 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 I think it's Claiborne, um, great commitment to poverty and justice and inspiring all kinds of younger people to kind of give up everything and try to help the poor. You know, I mean, there's always going to be reformers and movements like this, but we live in a... <laughs> They live in an oligarchy, in my opinion, and the media, of course, isn't going to give much, much airtime to that. Right. They're very, very much comfortable, you know, allowing the narrative that helps their corporate power be the one that they listen exactly. to. Exactly. Well, um, let's uh, let's you know before we um, before we run out of time here, um, and I, you know I apologize for some of the side tracks, uh, but they seemed relevant, you know, parallel tracks in my mind. Um, how can we get in touch with our own warrior archetype, um, or how can we help children uh, maybe develop or explore their warrior archetype in, in healthy ways? Well, this is, I think, going to be different for everyone because people have to find what they resonate with. My niece, Talinia, was saying to me today, um, she really likes the Marvel movie, and, and she said, you know, it's important that you can see yourself in that person and see her in you. And I think this is the appeal of people like Hillary Clinton for many women of a certain category, you know, that she's smart, successful, polished, savvy, competent, confident, not sexually objectified, taking on the boys' club, Right. Whereas if you're a scientist or a mathematician, it may be like the movie Hidden Figures. You may really resonate with these women. Or if you're able to feel like an activist, it may be like, more like Greta Thornburg, this uh, 
Swedish 15 or 16 year old girl who started these Friday strikes for students. She's now been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. She's being attacked by lots of men, even um, Boris Johnson, that former Foreign Secretary of Britain. But she continues on with dignity and eloquence, and she's she's a power. She's a powerhouse. And uh, these people, they get their inspiration from stories and symbols and mythologies and archetypes. And this is something the field of virtue ethics is, you know, and psychology actually understands that when, when we see heroes in heroic action, we get this rush of emotion, awe, reverence, inspiration, makes us want to be virtuous like that. And this is something people, human communities have done from the dawn of time to give us strength and resilience and promote shared communal values. We have these hero stories. And this is why fairy tales are important, like G.K. Chesterton, I don't know why I can never say his name. Um, He talked about how fairy tales don't create fear in children or the idea of evil. Children know that from the world. What they do is they take this seemingly limitless evil or terror and they draw a boundary around it. So now it's a dragon. And they say now it can be killed or defeated. So this is the important thing with children is just to prevent steep self-other gradients, prevent us and them, reform these archetypal stories away from their misogynist chains of patriarchy and allow people to find the hero archetypes that they really relate to that can inspire them to want to go and do likewise. Okay. All right. And, well, you mentioned, um, uh, you know, that particular author. Um, Are there any other uh, songs or people that you um, find uh, helpful, that, you know, listeners may find helpful to, you know, develop or shape their uh, eco-feminist warrior archetype? Well, for me, um, for children, Moana is actually my favorite eco-feminist movie, in particular regarding the sort of eco-feminist warrior It focuses on healing and redemption and the warrior hero as someone who can see clearly how to move beyond divisions to kinship. And also the older woman, instead of being this ugly villain, is a source of grace and wisdom and power. There's also this um, Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls books and a lot of other great little biography series you can find in the library with all kinds of examples of brave prophetic girls and women in them. For teens, I love The Hunger Games. I think that's fantastic sort of anti-oligarchy book. And for adults, I thought Mad Max Fury Road was excellent. Actually, it's not my type of movie, but it's basically an eco-feminist manifesto in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that in general, finding, um, no, I don't know, finding warrior archetypes is more important than finding eco-feminist warrior archetypes. If you're going to try to be a warrior, you just need somebody who inspires you, whether it's Carrie Fisher in Star Wars or the Indigo Girls, and they have this song Pendulum Swinger all about the feminine divine and rejection of toxic masculinity. And, or it may be that it's Vandana Shiva from India or celebrities who use their status to raise awareness of issues like Daryl Hannah and Emma Thompson or historic people like Dorothy Day, um, Harriet Tubman. And then there are some amazing African-American modern people like um, Aisha Evans. She was in that famous photograph of an African-American woman standing calmly in this flowing dress with her arms crossed as police and riot gear rushed to arrest her at a Black Lives Matter protest. I mean, it was absolutely divine and sacred, that photo. It felt like, it felt like holy to me. And then Bree Newsom, this woman who scaled a 30-foot flagpole to take down the Confederate flag in the South Carolina State House and she says, she's holding the flag and she says, you come against me with hatred, oppression, and violence. I come against you in the name of God. This flag comes down today. I mean, these are people that, they really inspire people to kind of go ahead and follow them. And I, I think they can do a lot of good if, if people, you know, pay attention. There's, there's heroes everywhere, actually. Yeah, and if we, and like you said, if you know, if if uh, if our media focused more on those things, but you know, I don't think they want to encourage uh, any of us to fight the system. <laughs> uh, well, Trelawney, um, I. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I appreciate uh, you being with me tonight, and uh, we're kind of at the end of the hour. I know we've talked about a lot, uh, but is there anything you want to close with that maybe I haven't thought to ask you? I guess I just want to make sure that people don't 
don't other the warrior archetype and assume that this is something other people do over there and you have to be perfect and flawless and have idols about it. You know, flawless, perfect idol people do these heroic things. There are no idols. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has flaws and everybody's messy. And so therefore it's really up to each one of us. We're all the hero. It's just up to us to choose how we're going to do it. You know, that's, I guess that's where I would end. Okay. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much. Um, I love the essays uh, you put periodically in the Feminism and Religion blog uh, when I see you. Uh, you know, with an essay when I wake up in the morning, I always read it. So, um, you know, just so you know, you know, you are you are touching people's lives and uh, you're reaching so many people with your work. And, you know, thank you for all the information you shared with listeners. I mean, uh, you just have a wealth of knowledge and insight. And uh, I appreciate you sharing it with me and uh, everyone out there. Well, Karen, I really love your work as well, and I'm so grateful for the chance to chat with you again. It's always really fun and nourishing for me. Well, uh, anytime, uh, you know, you have a topic you want to chat with or, you know, you've got a bee buzzing around in your bonnet, just pop me an email and we'll talk about it here on the air. Great. Thanks. That sounds great. Okay. All right. Good night. Good night. Take good care. And um, Okay. Bye-bye. And uh, for Bye. those of you listeners who might want to uh, look into Trelawney's uh, work a bit more, her website is her last name, uh, Trelawney.org, uh, T-R-E-L-A-W-N-E-Y.org. Uh, and her name is Trelawney Grenfell Muir, G-R-E-N-F-E-L-L. Dash M-U-I-R. Uh, and before we go tonight, uh, please hang in there with me just a couple more minutes because uh, we have a, a quick word uh, from Joe Carson. The psychic state of the collective unconscious, which is that consciousness of the planet. It's called the chronic mind, the mind of the earth. Our ancestors understood that the animal and the divine were all connected, they were together but there wasn't a separation. That's what we are trying to return to, is that sense that our animal nature is divine. It doesn't get in the way of the divine. It gets us closer to it. What's your idea of being fully alive as a human being? Because that's what's really spiritual. Write it down. Start writing your own Bible if you want. That's the sacred. And by that, I just mean sweaty, fun, happy sex. Well, you've been listening to the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, which is Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film. In it, she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers uh, all about earth energy, about sacred sexuality, about the return of goddesses Gaia. You know, you might not realize it, but Joe traveled all around the world uh, to ancient sacred sites in Europe, the Mediterranean, uh, getting the great footage uh, that she used to shoot this film. Uh, these spiritual sites, they went from northern Scotland to central Turkey. Uh, they profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. And, you know, if you've always wanted to see these places yourselves but haven't, this is an opportunity to experience some of the best ones right there from your armchair and get their story. You can become an armchair tourist or, or spiritual pilgrim. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini book, which goes even deeper into the material. You can buy the DVD and the booklet for only $20 at DancingWithGaia.com. And I highly recommend it. I have it in my library. Well, uh, that about does it uh, for me tonight. And uh, I want to thank you for tuning in. Uh, please tell your friends. And I will be back with you next Wednesday on May 1st um, at a different time. Uh, but if you have clicked the follow button, it will uh, the link will show up in your uh, email box. Uh, I have with me uh, Tony Spencer calling in from uh, the UK. Uh, she is going to be talking about deep adaptation 
meditation. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people out there that are talking about we've uh, passed the point of no return on climate change. And uh, deep adaptation is about how, so if that's, if that's true, um, how do we adapt? And uh, it, it's very, very interesting. And uh, there's a sacred feminine uh, element to it as well. Uh, so uh, next time I'll be with you is uh, Wednesday, May 1st. Um, I hope you'll be with me. Uh, that about does it. I hope you're enjoying spring. And uh, that, this is Karen Tate saying good night uh, for Voices of Sacred Feminine Radio. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.